going to go ahead and dismiss all kids ages 3 through 9. All kids ages 3 through 9. You are dismissed to go back with Miss Liz there into um, Children's Church. For those of you who are staying with us, I want to invite you to go, uh, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to, to 1 Samuel chapter 16. That's 1 Samuel chapter 16. Um, and certainly this is uh, a movement we're transitioning now into one of the most important characters in the Bible. Indeed, as we look at the story of the Bible, we, we certainly confess that it really is all pointing to Jesus Christ. But when we acknowledge that as we look at the story as pointing to Jesus Christ, so much of the story flows through the story of David. In fact, so much that when we introduce Jesus, we see that an important characteristic of who he is is not only that he is the Son of God, he is the eternally begotten Son of God, fully divine, but he's also fully human as well and is the Son of David. And so to understand Jesus fully and in the full revelation of who he is, we need to really even understand who David is and vice versa, because to really, truly, fully understand who David is, we need to see that he is pointing and foreshadowing to the true king of Israel, which is Jesus Christ. And so we're moving into a very integral part of the biblical narrative, both to point us to Jesus to see more of God's pattern and power and purpose of redemption, but also it helps us even more fill in the contours and the richness and the texture, really, even of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We find that the Bible actually, I have not done, I, I saw one writer say this, I, I think he may be right, but I'd have to, 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 to do a little bit more research on this. He's certainly close. We, we almost know more about David than we do almost any other biblical character. Certainly we know a vast swath of his life, but from his very early age, quite a bit from him as a youngster in his early age, all the way to really his final moments in his final words of his death. And more than that, as one who wrote 73 of the Psalms, we see a tremendous part of his inner life as well. His inner emotions, who he is, his failures, his hopes, his longings, and how all of it he channels into worship of the living God. And so David is one that God gives us a lot of information about. And I think it's because we can relate in many ways to him, not as a king. A lot of us aren't going to understand what it's like to be king. And hopefully we don't relate to some of the sins that he does because they're really quite egregious. But we relate to one who struggles with sin and has to learn and understand what does it mean to be one who is completely and utterly dependent upon God. Another interesting fact that was pointed out in, as I was reading this week is as we look at the vast swath of David's life, what, I, what is interesting is there really isn't a lot of supernatural around him. We certainly see the very explicit hand and sovereignty of God at move in certain ways. For example, the slaying of the, the, the giant Goliath. For this man who, is so, who so sees God everywhere and is so aware of God's meticulous sovereignty over his life, we don't see that many out and out what we would call incredibly supernatural miracles accomplished through David. But yet we see one whose life is thoroughly lived under the cleft of God's sovereignty. And so we find that even in that, there's relatability to David within there. Now, so as we move into this, let us pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and your kindness. Be with us as we move into this passage of Scripture. 
Fill us with hope. Fill us with wonder in who you are. And change us. Enable us to be a people who is more and more dependent upon you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I, I have found that there are few things in my life that have tempted me to give in to my cynicism, to give in to despair at the human race, quite like looking for a job. When you're looking for a job, it is truly and utterly an inhumane process. Because what you're doing is you're, you're looking at and you're trying to present yourself with all these trophies. You're trying to present yourself in a very... You're not really trying to present yourself in many ways as to who you are, unfortunately. That seems to be frowned upon. But really, you're trying to present yourself as what everyone needs. And what happens in the process is it, become, it can become utterly amazing as what is revealed how superficial we are as a species in humanity. If we're too old, it feels like we have nothing to give. If we're not fully articulate, or if we're not, and it's been amazing, I've noticed how much people really even judge based on looks, as much as we try to say that, well, oh, we're, we're moved past that in society. No, we have not. Not even a little. And I have to admit that there's been times, and you really want to peek behind the curtain, when you're looking for a, a job at a church, it's even really bad. Now, Grace Covenant Church did not do that when they hired me, all right? So let me, they did it. I was truly, that's one of the things that set them apart for us, is the search process that they had and the way they did it. But I have to admit, I became remarkably cynical about the church during the process of, when I say the church, the corporate church, during the process of looking for a job. I had a number of people who were, quote unquote, in ministry, who talked to me about how I can massage my resume to make it sound like I've done more than I really have. I had an executive pastor who was talking to me and I was trying to talk to him more and more about what was important when he looked at a resume. What, what really drew his attention to say, hey, this is a harder person? And he flat out said the picture of the candidate was one of the first things that drew him in. I saw so much where what was far more valued, and this reveals the heart of people is not what we would see what God values, but really no different from what the world values, which is ultimately extraordinarily superficial. Now, we can look at that and we can shake our head at modern society, but the truth of the matter is, that is true for really all of human history. And we see that on full display here in this passage. How prone we are as a society to not look at what is important from God's perspective, from a, but from a shallow human perspective. A perspective that actually trusts more in humanity's might, in humanity's skill, in humanity's prowess, rather than the sovereignty and the goodness of God. Now, I hope that as you're reflecting on this, you can say, you know what? That's not been my situation. That's not what I have come across. Praise God. Thank you for that. I'm glad that you haven't come across that level. Maybe I'm just a very cynical person. But I don't think, well, I am a very cynical person. That's one of the things God is working on my heart. But the truth of the matter is we can be a very superficial people. That's true of our society, but we have to really submit ourselves to God because it is easily a way that can become a characteristic of who we are as a church as well if we're not careful because it is so subtle and so easy. And so we move into this passage and we're, we're filled with all kinds of understanding that we need to look and we understand what's important from God's perspective. And this helps us see that. 
And so we take a look at 1 Samuel chapter 5, or chapter 16, excuse me, looking at verses 1 through 5, and we see, if we remember from last week, God has rejected Saul as king over Israel. He has committed a second egregious act of disobedience. And so God has said that he is going to take the kingdom away from Saul and give it to one who is of his choosing, one after God's own heart. And so we see now in verse verse, uh, 1 of chapter 16, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and then go, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I provided for myself a king among his sons. Now, when we look at this, there's a couple of things. Number one, what we see is this is, Jesus, uh, this is going to be Saul's final mission, really. His final sending out, his pro- final prophetic duty as prophet that is being sent out, right? Now, but notice as well what God says here. What God says is you're going to this place, and don't miss this, where he says, he goes, where I have provided for myself a king. And so what we see here is emphasized is this is God providing for himself. It is his sovereign election that is being put into place here, his sovereign choosing of what is taking place here of who will be the next king. He has provided for himself. Now, this is certainly pointing out and is a foreshadowing, ultimately, of what he will do and what he will bring in the ultimate king, which is Jesus Christ. This is part of that pattern. He himself, as you look at humanity, all of humanity is broken, is corrupt, is depraved. There is no king that is truly going to be one who loves him with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, but he will ultimately provide for himself the true king in Jesus Christ. And thus the story ultimately begins pointing right off the bat to Jesus Christ. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what I shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came into Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came to meet him trembling, and they say, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. You see, Samuel's got a little bit of a reputation by this point, and so they see him coming, and they're they're a little bit nervous. Uh Uh-oh. Is he about to pronounce doom or gloom? Keep in mind, the last thing we saw him do was cut a king into pieces, right? And so the people are asking, why are you here? Bethlehem, in our minds, it comes off as a somewhat of an important city. Now, you might need to keep in mind, why is Samuel a little bit nervous going into Bethlehem? From where he is at, at Ramah, he will actually have to travel through Gabeah, which is the city of Saul in order to get to Bethlehem. That's the road's going to take him. So that's one of the reasons he's a little nervous. Hey, wait a minute. They're going to be asking why I'm on my way down there. What am I supposed to do? And so he comes into Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem, though, is we hear it of all kinds of importance because we know it's the city of David, who will become important. Ultimately, we know it's the place where Jesus was born. It was a city that was just a, a, a short distance from the city of Jerusalem. But at least in this time in the Iron Age, it was really very much a backwater community. There was nothing and nobody there of any significance and importance. And so they're a little nervous. Wait a minute. Why are you guys here? Why are you here? Why are you coming here? He says, I've come here peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse And his sons, and he invited them to the sacrifice. Now, here's where we get into the heart of the passage, verse 6. And when they came, he looked to Elab, and he said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. And so he looks at him, and what we can see based on the Lord's response is 
is Samuel is really looking for someone just like Saul. Now, keep in mind, what were the, key, the people wanting? Why did they want a king? Is it because they wanted a king to just kind of look regal? No, they wanted a warrior king. They wanted a king who would give them stability, who would be their warrior, who would fight their battles for them. And so they're looking for a tall, imposing figure that will be able to lead them into battle. And so he looks at this, this guy, and he seems like, oh, yeah, I can see people following this guy into battle. But here's what the Lord's response is, and this is important. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks in the outward appearance, but the Lord looks onto the heart. The Lord looks onto the heart. And so he is correcting Samuel and ultimately he's correcting me to not look as the world sees, to not look at importance, to, to not look at the attributes that we find so relevant. Now, this can certainly be, at this time, the physical prowess as they're looking for a warrior king. But we can look at this in other ways, too. Is this someone who is an intellectual giant? Is this someone who is so smooth and charismatic? Is this someone who we can just see that this is a social mover and climber? He is a networker, or she is a networker. Surely this is the kind of person that would be important. Now, we say, well, we'd never be so shallow, but how often, if we're being honest, have we looked at someone and thought, man, if that person would become a Christian, can you imagine what they could do for the church? Man, if Bill Gates became a Christian, can you imagine what he would do with all that money? If, if uh, such and such intellectual became uh, uh, this, this famous scientist, imagine what would happen? He would just be such an intellectual powerhouse. He would just become an apologetic uh, dynamo. He is so intelligent. Man, imagine, God, why can't you just convert him? Oh, man, can you imagine if this famous movie star became a Christian? They are so popular. Or this famous musician became a believer. Imagine if they used their platform and all their good for Christianity. Man, how much better would the church be? And we can really think, how much better would these people who are, have elevated success in the world be? And we think the church would be far more better than, let's say, Joe Schmo at your local library. Or the person who may be homeless on the street. Or the person who maybe has, doesn't have the mental intellect to really even finish school. We don't say, oh man, can you imagine what they would do? Why? Because we're looking at things not from the heart of what God sees, but from the heart of man. We betray ourselves by the very conversation. Now, it's worth noting as well that this is not a conversation about salvation. God is, doesn't look and choose who he's going to save based on some deep, something that he sees within the heart. The Bible teaches us that when he looks at the heart, basically the most righteous of us is but a filthy rag, right? When we are saved, we are saved by nothing but grace, not because he sees some sort of potential within us. But as he looks and we look and see what is characteristic for leadership for those who are in, even in service, the potential he sees within there isn't based on the potential that we see. And we'll discuss what, that, what he sees and is important to him in a moment. Now, so what we see here is then Jesse called another son and he made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. So Samuel's a little concerned at this point. Wait a minute, I just looked at seven sons. 
Now, keep in mind, this is also in time when more prestige tended to go to the oldest sons, right? Verse 11. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest. Now, there isn't necessary derision in the way that this is said, but it also, it's not giving an elevation to this person. It's very much like, well, there's this guy, he's the youngest. He's, there's a sense of irrelevance, right? He is the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And when he sent and he brought him in, now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, to, said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. And then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now, a couple of things to point out from this. Number one. Notice in contrast the difference between the introduction of David and the introduction of Saul. When you see Saul, if you remember, what do we see? We, see, we saw one who is fairly hapless in his job as a, as a shepherd. There was a lost donkey, and he, had, he wasn't willing to find it. He wasn't willing to really take any kind of initiative or problem solved to be able to find. He was ready to just give up on the donkey. But here we see David immediately is portrayed as one who is a faithful shepherd, one who is faithfully tending the sheep. Not only that, when we see Saul, we see the contrast of one that everybody look with his height and say, oh, wow, surely this is a guy who looks like he's going to be a leader. He looks like somebody that the people would follow. Now, it says that David was ruddy. Now, it does say that he was handsome. And we can look at that, and I admit, I myself look, it's like, wait a minute, God just made a big speech about it. He's not looking, not to look at the same thing that people look. Why is it even noting that he was handsome? Now, keep in mind a couple things. Number one, to say that he was handsome doesn't mean that he looked like he was going to be a great warrior king, right? It says he had beautiful eyes. I don't really care what the warrior I'm behind fighting with, what his eyes look like, right? I want to see what the size of his muscles are. And so there's a certain sense in which it is saying that. Now, it's also acknowledging that it doesn't matter what he looked like. That isn't what's important. That isn't the characteristic that is going to define him. Yeah, he was good looking. So in other words, we... We don't want to judge based on the looks regardless of what's behind the heart. There's another thing that I believe is going on, and it's, you can't really prove it, and the arguments I saw for it couldn't fully shut the door on this argument, but I, I, I do believe it's the case. I think there's a little bit of a foreshadowing of what will ultimately be David's downfall, which will be his lust, his relationship with women. Now, the other thing that we see here that is different is, notice we haven't heard a single word yet. In fact, in all of chapter 16, we don't hear a single word. We don't get David's first words in Scripture. Here he's being anointed, and best we can tell, all he did was just take the anointing. He wasn't like Saul where he was trying to fight against it. He simply received God's calling upon him. And what we see is in the anointing, the Spirit of the Lord was with him. That's important because we see the contrast with the rejection of Saul in, in verse 14. It says, Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Now, what's the point and the importance of what we're trying to get here? Number one, what we see that the Scripture is trying to show is the Spirit is now with David and no longer with Saul. That's the main point that is, that is being uh, driven here. David now has the anointing as king. Saul does not. Yet he still is holding on to his throne. Now, some of you, and you may have a translation that says, an evil spirit of the Lord tormented him. The ESV, I think, is a better translation because the word there is the word ra'ah. 
Now, the Hebrew word ra'ah has a certain elasticity to it. It, has, it can certainly mean um, an evil as far as a moral evil, like what we would call maybe a demonic spirit would be an evil spirit. But it also can hint, uh, connote the, a way of, of saying that something is a calamity. Like a, a flood would have been a ra'ah. It would create a, a great deal of calamity on a region. It, not necessarily something that is moral, has some sort of moral degree to it, but um, it does connote a sense of calamity, right? Or a tornado within there. And what the Lord says is there is a, there is a harmful spirit. Now, what does that mean? Some people would look at it and say, basically, he sent a demon to torment him. I don't think that's the best translation. I don't think that's the best way to interpret that. What I believe is sent here is essentially this is part of God's judgment upon Saul. I can't prove this, so just take this with a grain of salt. But what could easily be the case within this, this harmful spirit is essentially Saul has developed some sort of mental illness, some sort of something like a bipolar, a manic depressant, something that causes him to be deeply afflicted mentally and emotionally. Now, it is important to note that the Bible says three times in these three verses, 14, 15, uh, and 14 through 17, that it is from the Lord, right? So you can't just say, well, this is some sort of natural thing that has plagued him. This is from the Lord. However, I do believe personally that this is part of judgment upon Saul as one who has become so obsessed with himself and his insecurities that basically the Lord has given him over as part of his wrath to, hey, you want to be obsessed with yourself? Here's the end result. Here's the end psychological disorder that accompanies that. As he has removed his spirit from him, he has allowed this, or I should say ordained, that his judgment experience this, which is kind of a giving over to that which Saul has already put his heart to. That's my interpretation of what's going on. Regardless, what you see is what is very evident is that God is no longer with Saul. And that is not only evident to him, but that is evident to everyone. It says, as we keep going on, And Saul's servants said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. So in other words, even the servants know and understand that what is happening is because of God. God is the one doing this. Let our Lord now command your servants here before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. That's like a harp. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. Now, here's where you see the sovereignty of God in full display. Notice what happens. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and skin and wine and the youngest goat. And he sent them by David, his son, to Saul. David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, David, remain in my service. Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Now, what do you see this right here? David has been anointed as king. David has been promised that he is going to be the future king of Israel. Yet what happens after the fact? He goes back to his sheep. Not only that, but you see that he is brought into the presence of the, of the current king, Saul. And you see the beginnings being put into place for David to become king. And they're not orchestrated through Jesse, 
doing some sort of kind of a dance mom's um, manipulation to try to elevate their, his son to say, hey, wait a minute, my, king's, my, my son's been king. Let's make sure and put him in a position to where he is seen. It hasn't happened through David, uh, you know, kind of aggressively coming out and usurping power or establishing his dominance in the court. It's come about through God orchestrating the events. And in orchestrating the events, he puts Samuel or puts David into the place where he'll be able to learn courts. He'll learn who the people in the court are. Who are the families of Saul? Who are his, what is the role of advisors? And so he's been anointed a king and God puts him in the place where he can learn more about what does it mean to be king and ultimately put him in the place to ultimately become the king. This is the work of God, not David. This isn't because he or his father became this master networker. It's all through the power and the sovereignty of God. And in doing so, what you'll also see as well is the heart of David. And this is part of what I believe you see in the heart that, that God saw, sees within David is one who, though he is going to be the future king, the current king, what is he doing? He is humbly serving Saul. He is humbly serving Saul. While he waits for his larger anointing to, to happen under God's timing, he is humbly serving. So what do we see here is important? And this is what God reveals here. What is really important? I was once in a group discussion one time where uh, we had a group leader and he gave us a, a case study. And in the case study, we saw a, 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 a story of a person who was interacting. I don't remember the details of the case. And in the study, one of the participants kept going on and on about what he saw was happening with the, uh, this, the, the, the main character in the case study. Oh, well, this person's doing this. And the facilitator kept saying, no, that's not really what's going on. Let's take, keep looking. You're looking. And, but he wouldn't go, he wouldn't back down. The guy kept arguing. And finally, the facilitator said, look, this is a fictional story, and I wrote it. I can tell you what is going on with this person, and that is not it. You know what the person did? He continued to argue. I can tell you what's going on here. God is telling us what is going on here. The question is, will we receive it? And the first thing that we see that God is saying is important to God is that God looks at the heart. I know that's not really profound. It's kind of black and white, but it's so hard for us to grasp in our modern day world. Because in our modern day world, we live in a place of images and platform of social media in which we try to present ourselves in a certain way, in a certain light. Um, I've been reading a lot from different guys on, on books on spiritual formation. And what I find is so fascinating is some of the, within some of these people, they're, they're really crying out against social media and Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and all these things. But then they say that they write their book about blasting people for being on these things. And then the publishers, the first thing that they say is, you have to have a social media account. And they say, well, wait a minute. Have you read my book? Have you not looked to see where I blast this? And they say, it doesn't matter. For you to have a successful book, you have to have an online platform within it. And so what do most of them do? They just say, okay, all right. They, they, they admit their heart's not into it, but they, they go ahead and and do that. And so I've, I've seen so many different writers lament about how much they hate social media, but then they say they have to do it because that's just the way our world works. We have to have a platform. We have to have all these ways of doing things. What's furthermore amazing is in doing so, we've even gathered and, and, and carefully uh, cultivated what the authentic look actually looks like. And so it's funny, I was even, this sounds, I'm, I, now that I hear myself, I sound like one of those old men, get off my lawn. But um, 
you know, we can look at this and we even try to cultivate the image of what, if I'm being real and I'm being authentic, what that looks like. And it's amazing how clean it often is. We have cultivated so easily an image and a look of what even supposedly is authentic, right? God isn't fooled by all of that. God says he looks at the heart. And what comes down before all of this is the reminder and the understanding that God does not need us. And that's the heart. What is he looking for? In the heart, one who is a person of complete and utter trust on him. And that's the message, keep in mind, as this is a book written to the exiles. People who are, many of them in Babylon, awaiting for people who would take them out of of Babylon and to be restored back into the promised land, into Jerusalem, into Judah. What's the kind of person that will help lead them? What's the kind of person that will be the one who we can put our trust into, that we can look to to be our leader? And frankly, that's questions that we ask ourselves as a people as we come into election times. Is it the type of person that we can look to see, hey, this will be... This is a person who is successful by the world's standards and therefore my best option? Or he fights the way or she fights the way that the world fights? And so we anoint them as God's choice? The true person which what God looks at is a person who is ultimately submissive and dependent upon God. It's one who understands that God doesn't need us. I've seen and known many remarkably wealthy people who are truly godly people. What makes them so godly is they understand that God doesn't need their wealth. They don't view their importance with God, defined by their wealth, or brilliant intellectuals who are truly godly people because he understood God doesn't need their intellect. For many years, if I'm, if I'm being honest, I, uh, I really prayed that God would give me more intelligence. I was I so just lamented at how frankly dumb I am. And I just would pray, God, if you would just give me this incredible memory, give me that photographic memory. Can you imagine what a, how much better preacher I would be? I wouldn't need my notes as much. I'd be able to remember everything I wrote. I wouldn't have those moments where I go into my office like, oh, I forgot to say that. And God's constant reply to that, though I never heard an audible voice, is no. That's not what you need to grow as a pastor. For me to grow as a pastor and ultimately as a child of God was for me to grow in my dependence upon God, my reliance upon God. And that can be very subtle. Even this morning as I was coming into church, right, And I have to admit, I was coming in this morning feeling a certain amount of anxiousness. Certain minutes, like, man, did I I do enough praying this morning? Did did I do enough in this? Have I crafted the sermon just right enough? Have I done this? And I began to really think through and say, you know what? I really need to get prepare my heart this morning. And these are all good things, but as I began noticing the, the inner con- dialogue and conversation going in my mind, and I believe the Holy Spirit brought this to my mind, the constant word that was being repeated was I, me. Have I done this? Have I done that? And what that was breeding was anxiety. 
not trust. And as I began to reflect on the message and even reflect on the difference between Saul and David, it came to me, that's the key difference right there. Saul was always constantly reflecting on what have I done? What spiritual preparation have I done? Versus David, he had a heart that was turned towards the Lord, but ultimately he was resting in the confidence of who God was. He was trusting in him, in his mistakes, and in his, in his triumphs. It was still all about God. That is the place of where he hopes. And that is ultimately what does it mean to be a person when God looks at it is that what God is looking for is not for our, an IQ test, not for, an, for a, a wealth test, not for a charm or charisma test. Is this a person who is dependent and trusting on the Lord God Almighty? The second thing that we see is God ultimately chooses for himself. This is God and God alone. He is the one who's in charge. He is the one who is not only calling who the job will be, who will be in this position, but when this will take place and how this will go about taking place. That's important for us to understand. And this still goes back to the previous point of being one who is completely and utterly trusting in God. I go back to my initial illustration of cynicism, right? Because there's many times, if I'm being honest, I saw different jobs that were being filled, sometimes in ministry, sometimes in other jobs. And I thought to myself, boy, I really wanted that job. Or I think I would be so much better at that job than the person who was hired. Now, what is that doing within there? That is in me trusting more in human skill and in my skill than looking and trusting in the dependence upon God. And that becomes a breeding ground for bitterness and jealousy. It becomes a breeding ground for cynicism and arrogance. But when my heart is one that trusts in the Lord God Almighty, I can trust that He is going to put whomever He chooses in positions and places where He has called them to be, and I can ultimately trust Him. And what that does is not pull me away from other people in bitterness, but it pulls me towards God in dependence. And being pulled towards God in dependence, it frees me to love and to serve because I am not a jaded person, but rather a person who is dependent on God and therefore free to love and trust that he has my tomorrow in his hands. The third thing, the seas. Oh, and this also means that we can trust him when he removes us from something, from a position, a ministry, a job, a place that we love. We can trust him. And this is all related. The third thing that this comes to is God ultimately oversees the timing and the call. He oversees the timing and the call. This is, again, part of that heart of what it means to trust. He's in charge. And so that gives us the attitude to not try to usurp, not try to manipulate our way into getting what we want, but rather to trust. And as we trust, we love and we serve as Christ is loved. Who is the ultimate anointed king? Jesus. And as he awaited his enthronement, he spent his ministry and his life serving. And ultimately said, I came not to be served, but to serve and give my life ransom for many. As he awaited the time in which he would give his life on the cross, a time where I would personally be thinking, you know what, I'm about to give my life and die a gruesome death for all these people. You know what, let me just enjoy this meal for a little bit. Jesus instead uses this as a time to teach the heart of ministry, which is service. So he takes his disciples and he washes their feet. He takes on the posture of a slave. So what does it look like for us then to develop this heart, this inner life of trust? 
What does it mean then if the heart in which God is looking for is a life of heart of dependence? What does it mean to cultivate a inner heart of trust? Cultivate an inner life of trust. Well, there's a lot of different ways that we can look and we can go to, but I'm just going to give three. The first is meditating on Scripture. If we're developing a heart of trust, that means we look at who God is and how He's revealed Himself. And so there's three things in which we're looking to do. We're looking to grow in our trust of the gospel. We're growing in our trust of who we are and what God has done for us, which God has revealed in Scripture to know that we are justified by faith, that God is sovereign and we can trust Him in every moment. And so we're trusting more and more to find our security in our heart placed firmly in the life of the gospel. And we're trusting in God's character and we're learning how to depend on that, on, in, in him in that. And let me give you two places where you can begin to meditate on scripture um, that can help emphasize all three of these characteristics. I mean, two places. There's a lot of places we could go in scripture, but... As I prayed, two, two places in particular came to mind. The first is Psalm 1. Psalm 1. Again, anywhere you go in Scripture is good, but if you're wondering where should I go, where should I begin, Psalm 1. Pray and meditate through Psalm 1 and pray and meditate through Hebrews 12. In those places you see where God is calling us to move away from the places of the world and move towards God in faith and in trust. So, begin to meditate on Scripture, and I recommend beginning with Psalm 1 in Hebrews 12. Now, the second thing is to cultivate a habit and an impulse of prayer. And what I mean by that is more than just times like a quiet time in the morning but rather to develop a life which views every moment and every second dependent upon God. And a key way we do that is through prayer. Prayer becomes like breathing, as Paul Miller says, for the, for the believer. It is something that we are to simply inhale and exhale. And what we are doing in that prayer is not trying to manipulate God, but in every moment and every time we are, to we are declaring our dependence and our need for God who is our Father who loves us. And one in whom is worthy of all of our trust. And so that comes through us not just for as, and as good and as important as in those moments and those quiet times with God of prayer. But throughout our day. Developing the impulse in which we are constantly praying in our mind. As we begin our conversations with a stranger. Father, help me in this conversation. As we begin, uh, we come home. Immediately we're saying, Father, help me to serve my family well, to serve my wife well, to love well, to not to be a good steward of this time. As we begin uh, having friends with a co-worker or uh, having a conversation with a co-worker, we begin saying, God, make me someone who is glorifying you in the way that I work this morning. When we stumble, when we struggle, God, our immediate impulse is, Father, forgive me. Have mercy on me, a sinner is developing that habit of impulse in which we are in a constant communication with God. And the third thing that I would call us to do is this, is this, is begin a habit of serving instead of obsessing. So often we become obsessive as we look through what God is having us. We try to find where is God leading us? What is God doing in our life? What has God called us to do? What is my purpose? Rather than obsessing over that, instead have an instinct which says, I am going to serve and trust that God will direct me as I serve into the places where he has called me to be. So it's developing an instinct of service rather than obsessing over our purpose. is ultimately developing in us a heart for the good shepherd, the true shepherd, King Jesus, the one who is good and says that he is the one who lays down his life for the sheep. An instinct of trust for him.
And the good news is this, friends. He is one who is ultimately far more worthy of that trust than we can possibly understand. We are not a people that is reaching out for him, wondering if he's going to answer, but rather he is the one who moves towards us in love, that gathers us as his people. He is the one taking the initiative, gathering us to himself, and we can trust him. Romans 12 calls us to not be conformed into the pattern of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And that flows from us becoming a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him. And so my urge to you, friends, is that you do that this morning. Become a people that says, I will not look to myself but I will look to the Lord Jesus Christ as my hope, my salvation, and my trust for everything. For our salvation, of course, that's where it begins. But not just in our salvation, but for everything. We are dependent upon him, and we trust that he is our good father who provides for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness towards us. Lord, we confess, I confess, I often look to the things around me. I look to things that that the pattern of our world says is important. As much as I get cynical about the rest of the world, if I look to myself inwardly, I can say, woe is me, a sinner. Have mercy on me. Father, I pray for us as individuals, but I pray for us as a church that in all that we do and all that we're about, we be a people of dependence upon you. Give us eyes to see and hearts to trust in you in all these things.